The city has become the default setting for the study of communication. How can one challenge the centrality of urban settings in the field? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Isabel Pavés in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us Doctora Isabel Pavés Andonaguegui, who is an associate professor at Universidad de los Andes in Santiago de Chile in Chile. She's also principal researcher at a number of very important studies at the Millennium Nucleus to improve the mental health of adolescents and youth, and the Millennium Nucleus to study media, politics, and public opinion in Chile. Isabel uh, obtained her bachelor's degree at Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile in Santiago, focusing on journalism. Um, then she did a Master of Science in Anthropology and Development at the University of Chile, also in Santiago. And then uh, Master's and PhD at the London School of Economics in political and Political Science in Communication, Information and Society, her Master's and in Media and Communication her PhD. Um, before teaching at Universidad de los Andes, um, Isabel also taught at Universidad Finisterrae and at the Economic Commission for Latin America in the Gender Division. She's the author of 20 publications and one of the leading experts in South America about technology, children, media, and gender. Isabel, welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's truly our pleasure. So, so tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Honestly, with an expired visa. Because I don't believe anyone will start saying when you are a little kid to say, I want to be an academic when I grow up, right? So at some point, I went to LAC to do my master's degree, but masters there are very, uh, very short in period, right? You start in September. In May, you already have exams, and by August next year, you are handling your thesis. So in that period of time, I learned so much, and it was so exciting, but I have no clue what to do afterwards. And my, my visa was about to expire, my student visa, but I was so engaged with the topic I was researching at that point. I was working with Robin Mansell from LAC, who I really, really, uh, she was a mentor, an incredible mentor for me. So at that point I say, okay, how, what can I do to stay? 
I really wanted to stay. Also London, amazing place to study, to meet other people, other cultures. It was really, really, it was my first time living outside Chile. So it was a major shift in my life. So I really wanted to stay. And then the idea of PhD came through. And in my department, the communication department, they were so welcoming, so nice to me. And they helped me to get through all the, all the things that I needed. My grades, thank God, were enough to apply to a PhD. And at that point, Ellen Helsberg was coming to LAC from Oxford University. So I was her first doctoral student, which is an honor for me because I started working with her. And she's also, for me, an inspiration as a researcher. So it was, but everything happened like in two months or so, because I was finishing up my thesis for the master degree. And then I realized I needed to get with an idea for the uh, doctoral degree and then start right in the, in after that. Very interesting. So when you went for your master's degree, what was your, career plan afterwards? Or did you have a career plan afterwards? Well, you won't believe me, but I worked in television for four years. I worked as a producer in television. And at that point, because I was a journalist and it was super, super exciting and everything, but I also, I, 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 I didn't belong there. So that's why I started doing my master's in anthropology at that point. And I do it during night. So during night, I was studying and then go to work the next day. So when I did the master's degree, it was a sort of like, um, how to say, a prize for having my master's in anthropology to get this master in communication and to get to know more about um, theories. Because in journalism, you don't get much of that. Journalism schools at that point in Chile was much more about like how to be a good journalist but not communication studies at all. So I'm talking about like, I don't, know, I don't want to say it, but almost like 20 years ago or so. So imagine when I returned to Chile with my doctoral degree and I go into this communication schools, they say, yes, but you, you know about theories, but you don't know how to teach journalism because media and communication studies were, weren't really a thing in Chile at that point. So now, of course, they are thing are we are wanted. But I remember um, I was doing my, my PhD at the same time that Artura Riagada that you had in the seminars. He was in uh, floor up in sociology. So when both returned to Chile, we have the same problem. That like we have this degree from communication, but communication schools say we don't need you because we teach journalism. So we're we're very lucky that many other people come up after that. Well, Sebastián Venezuela, of course, Teresa Correa, eh, Magdalena Saldaña. So then we, we were a bunch of people doing the same kind of things. And then I believe also universities also start to take a shift. And then I found my, my space as an academic. But that is why I started to work as a consultant for uh, a CLAC at that point. Very interesting. So, but... Let's go back in time. You go to the London School of Economics. It's your first time, you said, living abroad. Um, how's experience, even at the master's uh, program, how's experience living overseas, studying overseas, and studying overseas in a language that is not your native language? It was so difficult. 
I remember we, I, 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 I went uh, to London, but I have to say I have, a, I have help because I went with my husband. So it's different when you, you are with a partner because you are not alone. It's not so, I don't know, it's scary as going out. Actually, he was the one who convinced me to go there. So uh, it was very difficult. I remember by December, I started my master's in September. And in December, I was doing my uh, luggage. I say, enough. I don't belong here. I cannot do it. This is too much. I remember going to, <laughs> to my classes in the master's degree, and I didn't understand a thing. It was so difficult. I remember at one point, I was taking notes in Spanish. So I have a, a good friend now who asked me, oh, give me your notes to see. And I say, no, and took them away. And he said, wow, she's very competitive. But it was because I was so, so embarrassed to show all my scrabbling about. And well, I believe that LEC has a very, very, they're very aware of this because almost like 80% of the students are from, uh, from abroad and with a second language. So they uh, record all the classes. You can, you can hear all the classes later. Yes, you have access to all the classes after. So, really? yeah, it's amazing. They this have, is pre-pandemic. This is... Uh, I'm talking about 2008. Wow. It's amazing. Yes, because I believe that they realize that they have so many students that between September and December is difficult because you can you can uh, study English, but then you get to a place where everyone speaks differently. And London, Indian English, people from Asia speaking English, Spanish people, or Latino people speaking English is very different. So imagine, so in January, I start to listen for all my lectures again. And I believe that I really understand <laughs> what they mean. So for me, like the learning curve was so, so high. But then, actually, I have a friend, I have friends who at some point say, we thought that you didn't speak at all. Because I was like in a tennis match. Like when, when we were doing socials in a pub, I was like looking to that one and to that one and thinking what I want to say. When I wanted to say, they already changed the topic and it was like, oh my God. And, and also we have like the Chilean society. And for me, it was very nice. I said, okay, I'm going to spend time with the Chileans, with the Latinos, because I will speak wherever I want and I will feel like I belong. But on the other hand, I needed this, like, this space, this stress, just, I don't know, forget about everything and just start talking. And that was a major turning point in January, just three months after. And then I decide, okay, how can I do to stay? But it's something that I believe that you never really recover. Well, maybe you, but for me, it's still something like, because you think in English when you live there, but then you come to Chile and you have to start thinking in Spanish as well. So, so where you, that's interesting. Um, when you were in Chile, were you thinking about research, not about the professional life, but about research and texts and ideas in English or in Spanish? In English, and it was a major, it was a major thing because, for example, we have concepts like affordances. Mm -hmm. So, and um, I have, and some of the chats I am with another researchers who say, "How do you say in Spanish affordances? How do you talk about I don't know appropriation or fake news or topics that you will say, oh no, that's easily translated to Spanish, but they have different senses. 
And another thing that happens, at least in qualitative research, when I have to translate the quotes for my participants. Because when they speak in Spanish, the rural Spanish they speak, uh, the rural Chilean, sometimes there's a lot of data that I, I, I lost in the process because of the translation. So there are a couple of things, methodological things, I'm thinking that you need. I don't know, sometimes um, we are now doing a work with tweets, okay? With about um, uh, politicians, women politicians, Mapuche politicians, and tweets. And we have the discussion of, are we going to present in this journal in English the Spanish translation of it, but the Spanish, or we're going to translate it to English. And it was a conversation because when you translate, you are giving a meaning that maybe is not in the, in the original work, you know? So. That's right. So this work that you are doing um, with or about the work of female politicians in Mapuche. So do they communicate in Mapuche in addition to being Mapuche or do they communicate in Spanish? No, in Spanish, but as they were more prominent in the public opinion during last year, a lot of people start to use Mapuche words mm -hmm. as a sort of slang, you know? For example, they say, Mandenewen, Sennewen, Newen being like goodbyes, for instance, as sort of translate. So that, that sort of things that are very like cultural characteristics that uh, we need to grasp on when we do research. Absolutely. Now, your work straddles so the urban and the rural, right? Um, in Chile, what kinds of challenges and opportunities have you found? Because you've published very widely in trying to, um, to make the case about the findings from your research to, you know, audiences that are, you know, international, shall we say, or international in the English speaking language also, because they could be international in other languages. But what, what have been the main challenges and opportunities that you have found? Um, about the rural urban, you say? The rural and urban, so the work doing, you know, the, 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 doing the work about rural and urban communities um, in Chile, which is a country of less than 30 million. Well, you, you, first of all, you always have to um, justify yourself. You cannot just talk about Chile and just say, okay, I'm going to talk about Chile like every other people talk about the US and the UK. And I think this is an ongoing uh, conversation about uh, Twitter scholars, you know, like people that are discussing, sorry, in Twitter about why we have to justify that we're talking about this population. So why should we care about these people? And so for me, it's like a lot of steps because the challenge is first, to make urban people to care about rural people. <laughs> and then you need to make a broader audience to care about this very, very specific group of rural areas. And another thing that uh, another rural uh, literature, uh, rurality is not a synonym of vulnerability. That is something ha that happens in Latin America and maybe in some other, uh, maybe in Asia as well, but in Europe, you talk about rurality and people doesn't, people think, okay, they have good broadband. They're going to do um, 
not going to do their work by the internet outside, you know. In Canada, for example, reality doesn't mean that you are an outsider. But in Latin America, so you always have to spend a lot of time trying to explain like this picture and that to be in reality sadly means to be uh, sort of with less opportunity than the old ones. So it's, it's something that I tried to, to take on, but um, there was also a scholar, uh, Skerat, who said that our problem, and I believe that, is that we try to compare the rural with the urban, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't compare always the rural to the urban because there are different settings, different, uh, different cultures, no, not cultures, but different sort of like aims. So if you're to compare them, of course, they're going to be like the left behind all the time. But we need to see this rural from their own perspective. And that is why I believe that um, qualitative research can be more enlightening in these kind of settings. Very interesting. And and how would you characterize the main lessons learned about the rural when you see the rural from its own point of view that um, have been fostered by the use of qualitative research? Um, the main, the main um, thing that I have learned is about that I am very technological determinism, <laughs> or I have very specific outcome of how people should use the internet or at least I have at the beginning. And then as the year passes, I realized that this is something that we are so, we're so used to have like a sort of measure for everything, a measure of how you, how you should use uh, the mobile, how much time you should spend online, how much of social media is good or is bad. And we took that and I applied to the rural. And I realized, well, but, they that don't have the same rules, we shouldn't just measure them with all the things that I measure myself because they have different settings, different understanding needs. And that's why I, um, I believe that this is a, a learning process for me as a researcher to not judge them, to not say, okay, you should use internet and you should use it to, I don't know, to look for a job. If you're in a context where your job, you, you don't look for a job, on the internet, you know? So we have so much of these things going on and they're very subtle and they're very, um, how to say, we're so used to just to play. play. You have to do that, you, you should use it in this way. And this is my, uh, I believe that actually, if you don't want to use the internet, that should be okay. You should have the opportunity to decide what you need and what is good for you. And this is a, a a discussion we have all the time with Teresa when we're doing research, like the, this normative idea that we're coming from. And because also we are so privileged to have this sort of education and to travel abroad and to learn and to research. And then we go to these vulnerable communities and we need to be very humble to learn to see the world from their own views. Very interesting. Now, thinking while you're speaking, Perhaps I'm wrong, but I have a sense that the field of communication as a field of study is urban by default. Yes. Right? Um, we, we're not even aware. It's like the view from nowhere. So the city or the urban environment is the nowhere in this case. Mm -hmm. um, as a scholar who studies 
what is not the default, right? What have, has been your experience and what strategies have you sort of implemented to navigate uh, that positionality? I, I believe this starts like when I was doing my PhD because I did my PhD about Latino women, migrant women, but the ones that they didn't know how to use the internet. I'm talking about 2010. Whoa. <laughs> so at that point I was being a, a teacher in some centers for migrant, for migrants, sorry, and teaching about how to open an email account, how to use the mouse. Uh, at that point, you did almost didn't have like smartphones for everyone. So it was very, very different. And I remember having this conversation with my supervisor saying, okay, why women? Why Latinas? Why migrants? Why vulnerable women Latinas in London? And this sort of why, why, why all the time was resonating in my head. So this idea of vulnerability was key. And then I went to speak and do some uh, research with these vulnerable women. I realized that there is a power relationship that you have to be very aware. Because I was in a moment where I have with another Latino woman. I was a migrant as well, a migrant, sorry, as well, but I was a migrant, a privileged migrant. I was studying in one of the most prestigious universities. I had a scholarship. I didn't have problems with my visa at that point. They did. And it was, it was very difficult for them. They didn't know how to speak to English. I met so many women that there were engineers, uh, journalists, whatever, name it, working as cleaners at that point because they didn't have the money to pay for the convalidation of all the studies. So, and that is where reflexivity as a concept became so important for me. Because first, I understand that this research, my PhD, uh, had to be conducted in Spanish because I tried, for example, with Brazilian women, but when you do it in English, it's different. Like you cannot create that rapport. So first it was this idea to have, uh, to, to do it in their own language so they can express themselves. And second, to make very aware the idea that I want to listen to them and I wasn't going to tell them what to do when the internet, I was, I was interested in their technological path. And you, you have to be aware of your prejudices, your biases, and also that you are in a position of power. That is very important in this sort of like a research setting. So if you ask me, uh, that, that has been one of my main uh, learning points. From, from that part. So that helped me a lot when I came to the rural communities. When we go with, to rural communities with Tere, for example, it's not like you can call in advance in, in before and say, okay, can I interview you? You know, you have to go, you have to stay nearby or one of the cabins, you have to go to eat with these people and to talk to them, to, to socialize, and then you start to learn. So you have to, to build this sort of like a space and to be humble enough to just go and to do the things that they do and then start to see the world from their eyes, you know, from the, from the point of view. So that is something that I did and that is something that helped me with my PhD when I was a teacher for them 
because it gave me a couple of months to gain their confidence, to gain their, uh, their trust, and to demonstrate them that I, I, I wasn't a police officer trying to cut them in anything, just wanted to, to know about them. Fascinating. So that was your dissertation research, correct? Your thesis at the London School of Economics. Um, you went back to Chile. Did you think about staying in England or in Europe or other place overseas for your academic career? Did you want always to go back to Chile? How was that part of your journey? We, we wanted to stay in London. And that was the reason I did at the beginning my PhD to, to stay the, the longest as possible because we were having a blast there. It was amazing. But life happened. <laughs> And I had uh, my first child overseas, and that was a major uh, life-changing event. And although I was able to survive for a year, and it was very, very difficult for us, um, and then it became clear to me that I need some sort of like social network, uh, family help, and that's why we, re we returned to Chile. But it's something that uh, now we regret, <laughs> and we're always hoping to come back and to have this experience as well with my husband. Uh, but at that point, that was the only option for me and for us because uh, we didn't have much uh, economic help. So I have to work and I have with this baby and nannies are very expensive. <laughs> so at the end, I was spending all my time working to pay the nanny and they, they didn't have time to actually do my, my, my PhD. And I can actually see they, they were so, so understanding and they let me to come back, somewhat took care of my kids, helped me a lot. And then I will I will able to finish it up in 60 months time or so and return to my viva. So that, that's why, the, but um, uh, we would like to return. We believe that it's important. We would like to give our children the opportunity to live abroad because I think it's very, very important. And also uh, with Teresa, with Tere, we are very interested to create all these networks and to work with people from other countries. So even though we live here, uh, she always tell me that this is a very advantage point to live here because we have so much space to do research. You have so many venues we haven't go there. So actually uh, it's kind of blessing to be here and to be able to to look and do research and to communicate it to the entire world. Very interesting. So there are two, two different paths that open here, right? One is how to engineer or assemble collaborations with scholars in different countries. The other is what happens when one returns to one's home country after many years overseas, right? And, and, and you return from a professional standpoint changed because you completed, you know, your doctorate, etc. So let me start with that one. So how was the process to go back to Chile as a doctor and uh, to start your professorial career there? At that point, um, we were sort of like the first batch of people having a scholarship coming back to Chile. 
So I believe I am at, at the beginning, as I telling you before, uh, we were a few of us trying to figure out where we can move, what we can do. Uh, I was exploring sociological, sociology departments uh, to see how I could communicate with others to try to insert myself, but I wasn't clear enough because the path wasn't clear at that point. Now we're many of us uh, who are doing uh, collaboration of work. Uh, so now it's easier, I believe. And also because when you start publishing, and I, I, I got the help of Tere because she invited me to her first grant. So then you start, you kind of start doing some work to publishing and then everything becomes so easy. So I believe that collaboration is very important. Uh, to have someone who can inspire you and you can work together where you are, or maybe in another country, it can work as well. But that, it was very important for me. And as, again, I didn't, I never expect to be like an academic. I don't know how long I will be an academic, but for this time, for this decade, it has been great. But, and also because I am in a, in a university and now I feel like more confident, but I don't know. I, my student asked me why you wanted to do this, and I said I don't know how I came here, but it's an interesting path, and I believe that everyone who is doing a PhD now, um, now is clearer. But yeah, it, it wasn't so easy at that point. So what's what what kind of um, routine do you have as a professor in Chile when you compare your the daily? Um, tasks of your job and the you know distribution of teaching research service you know the location of time etc with your colleagues who are in the UK or in Europe in the US what do you find is it similar is it different how many classes do you teach how many students do you have tell us a little bit more about the daily uh, well Latino culture is very like you create relationship with your students so we have to be very available for uh, for coffees, for emails. So I remember when I, I came here, I wanted to do a time slot to meet the students because I was used to in LDC that you have a time slot to receive people. And they tell me, no, you're always available. And so like, how am I going to do teaching? But yes, but this is very important that you have a that you have an open office sort of like <laughs> so that's because I went with my UK, you know, mentality that you have two days off to do research, you have one day teaching, and then you have your super, your super VCs and you have some time to meet them. But here, everything is like, mix it up. Like, try to do it how, how you could. And has been a journey, to be honest. And also a sort of a fight, if I can say, because at the beginning, I have like six courses per year, and it's impossible to have six courses and <laughs> to do research. Six different courses or some is the same no. course that you teach more than three, one? Three each semester and it was madness. But as I started to gain more and more grants and to promise uh, and, to, and to have committed more time doing research, uh, my university, they were very understanding me and say, okay, so they start to taking out classes. But it's a sort of like, I would say that um, teaching me is a sort of a tax and research task, uh, tax that you have to pay. So if you do more research and you have more publishing, then we'll take you a bit of more of the classes, you know, because they understand you cannot do everything. But at the beginning, you have to prove yourself. 
like it's very difficult i will say that you can start with all the time to do research at least as a as a teacher or assistant professor maybe if you are a postural uh, postdoc student it's different but in chile we're expected to spend a lot of time with the students and teaching and to engage with the academic community internationally, what kind of support do you get? Well, the first and most important is to go to conferences, mm -hmm. I would say. Uh, to go to conference and to volunteer as much as you can. Volunteer in committees and try to create this sort of network. Also, uh, we try to engage to publishing together. So, for example, uh, to create our sort of like uh, networks with another people or to get to work with them is very important. And in that sense, I believe like conference are key. Like when you're starting, you need to go to get to know people, to not be shy and to go as much thing as you can to meet other people, to, to get to their ideas, uh, because collaboration is key. But you cannot collaborate if you don't know what the other ones are doing. So more than going to show your work, is going to learn about the work of others and to try to find this kind of a space for you to, to be able to, to contribute as well. So, and well, when I return to Chile, I say like, I am in the end of the war and so far away from Europe when everything is going on, so far away from people that, but at the end, you're not so far away. You have this kind of conference, this kind of spaces and also there's a, there's a lot of like grants, international grants that help to collaborate between different countries, different continents, and you can take advantage of that. And being from Latin America, it's a, a plus point. So, How so? <laughs> yes, because sometimes you can say, well, I am a woman in Latin America doing research and that is like ding, 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 like, for, for someone who is giving you funding, they say, yes, it's interesting. And also you add more diversity. So that, that is very interesting space for us as well, because we can give you something that is not so, it's not so common. Like it's not common to have people who have access to internet just five years ago. And we have the amazing chance to have the before and the after. So that sort of things that you can add to any other sort of like a communication uh, research going on, you can give a completely different sort of view. So I believe that the diversity means contribution. Diversity in terms of who is the researcher, diversity in terms of like the people you are researching, diversity in terms of themes. So I believe that is an advantage. Very interesting. And, and speaking about, uh, diversity and you know points of advantage and things like that then if you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication studies to change what would you wish for Isabel? Uh, that the uh, that Spanish is the native language definitely definitely I think that <laughs> I really that I would love that everything is in Spanish by default because I can't imagine the time you spend trying to write well, the money spent, like doing like copy editing and so many uh, reviews I got from articles saying, well, this is interesting, but the English needs some proof. And 
of course, the always can improve that. And yes, so I believe that, that, that the language thing is something that really stick on me as I would like. And also I would like that we don't have to justify so much why we're doing uh, research in different places. Uh, and that, I don't know, Europe or the US are like the obvious place to start something. For instance, sometimes when I uh, review some articles, uh, I know immediately, like people from the UK, some, some, not everyone, of course, some people from the UK say, well, so, and they start to talk about uh, their, uh, their institute and their places and their governments, like everyone is from there, you know? And you say, well, I am international audience. I am from the global South. I don't understand all the things that you are saying, you know? But for us, it's on the contrary. We're all the time saying, oh, almost like, I'm sorry I'm talking to you about something so far away that I need to give you all the context. So that is something I would like to change. So we don't have to um, say so much why we're doing this in the global south. That is like granted as in when you talk about the US on the UK. All right. Thank you very much. Those are two very important uh thoughts and wishes. Thank you, Isabel, for uh, sharing your knowledge and your journey with us. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us through the end. And I want to invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Isabel. This was great. Thank you. Bye. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson. <laughs>